The Winnipeg Free Press proudly presents, in partnership with CJNU 93.7 FM, Megan and the Lone Ranger. Here are your hosts, Negan Sinclair and Dan the Lone Ranger Let. All right, everybody, uh, here we are for another podcast, and we're, it's, a, it's a very special post-election podcast because sitting here with us in the Manitoba Legislature in the Premier's office is now Premier Wab Canoe, uh, of well-known by everybody at this point, but is a first of many, and uh, uh, it's a real honor to have you here. Well, it's uh, nice to be talking to you on the podcast uh, after having been sworn in, <laughs> talking about, you know, maybe someday or, you know, we'll do that in the future. But yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think the idea, you're now the first three-time guest uh, of the podcast and... Uh, I don't know. I, I wouldn't like, you know, what Bull Durham says, like, you don't mess with a streak. So I think that like every six weeks we ought to have you on the podcast and that'll just ensure success through the first. <laughs> um, I have to say, first off, I was very excited for about 15 minutes on election night because I thought that at 41, you were going to become the youngest premier in Canadian history. Like for about 15 minutes, I really thought it. No, I'm sure Ed Schreier was younger. No, Brian Alexander Gallant in 1983 was 32 years old when he was sworn in uh, as premier of New Brunswick. So I guess that, you know, being nine years younger, the first question is like, what took you so long? Yeah. Well, when I was running for leadership, one of the, because you got to work the phones and sell memberships and get support. One of the longtime New Democrats I called, and you know, at the time I would have been I guess in my early 30s, he said, you know, you're a lot older than Schreier was, but I'll give you a chance. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, it's, uh, do, do you find that people bring up your age a, a lot? I mean, you're not the youngest, maybe, but by most standards, you're still uh, pretty young. Well, I, I really uh, appreciate you saying that, and I would like you to say that in front of my teenage sons uh, and, and their friends who kind of groan when I try and talk, you know, football or pop culture with them. Uh, but on a more serious level, um, it does come up from time to time, but um, it's come up in a, in a positive way, if I could say that. Uh, you know, I was speaking to somebody from uh, the United States, and they said, well, you know, maybe it's good to have younger folks in office uh, you know i'm not saying I'm, I'm young but maybe just relative to some office holders uh south of the border there's uh not mentioning any names not no. mentioning any names whatsoever uh so let's i mean we're a few days out now uh about uh, the the swearing-in ceremony at the leaf mm-hmm. um uh, I have to make a comment in that my daughter said that you made a dad joke um, at that, you know, turning over a leaf in Manitoba. Anyways, I had a worse dad joke. I had a worse dad joke lined up, which is like, you know, the the hard work, of the raking up the leaves so that we're all doing right now. Yeah, so I, I spared you the worst, I guess. No, no, seriously, like, you're premier now. You can make whatever jokes you want, right? Like, if you don't, like, what's the use of having this job if you need to be careful about the jokes you tell? Well, it will definitely stick to the dad jokes that, uh, <laughs> that we can all agree are not the yeah. so. So, um, I mean, besides the dad jokes, uh, you know, arguably, I, I mean, I've attended tons of premier, uh, I mean, cabinet swearing-in ceremonies. I haven't been to you know. Normally, these are. I think Dan wrote a column about this. These are rather sort of official ceremonies that tend to take place in the legislature. 
Uh, I mean, as you talked about in your speech, every Indigenous nation was recognized uh, that of course all the different other nations that are a part of Manitoba are all a big part of that as well as members of the LGBTQ community, trans community. I mean, everybody seemed to be talked about in that ceremony. Um, so much about this election campaign was about difference and, and you, as you talked about, about unity. How do you think many Manitobans who perhaps didn't vote or maybe were looking at a different message? Um, I mean, we're talking about 200,000 voters who voted for some, another message. Uh, how do you think they took that ceremony? Well, I think there's been a lot of optimism that I've heard uh, from people since the election and since the swearing-in too. So I think it's been uh, a very interesting time. And what that means is in addition to all the normal high expectations of a change in government, it also means there's this additional expectation that a lot of people are feeling good uh, in Manitoba right now. And now we have to deliver on that optimism and on that sense of hope. And just on the, swear, the swearing-in ceremony itself, uh, it, it typically is, I would say there's stuff that we did like other governments, and there's stuff that we did that was new this time around. So in terms of the continuity side of things, when government changes, there typically is a bigger deal. Like I think um, Mr. Dewey did um, Pantages Playhouse uh, as like a big public uh, swearing-in production, if you will. Uh, Mr. Pallister did uh, the Canadian Museum of Human Rights, which at that time and still is like a very new showpiece for our city. But uh, one of the reasons why we wanted to do the LEAF was just like that's the new building in town that's speaking to the, the future of our city and the future of our province. And so we wanted to, to do that. So in some ways, I think there is consistency with the you know previous changes in government and their swearing in. And then the stuff that maybe we, we chose to lean into more was around recognizing the Indigenous nations and was talking about all communities and, you know, different walks of life being being represented there. And that is consistent with what we talked about during the campaign. And now uh, we had uh, a moment to celebrate and now it's up to us to administer the government in Manitoba in a way that everybody recognizes themselves in our decisions and feels like they have a part of uh, the things we do in healthcare or affordability or the other public policy areas. One, one of the really interesting things that I've had to deal with and in the, over the past you know couple days or so um, is uh, a lot of people turn to me and ask like why is he wearing a headdress like why is it, you know why is a headdress so important and so I've had to kind of do this explanation to people that uh, it, a headdress is about leadership. It's not about a chief of a community always. And, and that the reason that we use feathers in the headdress is to ask our leaders to see the highest in the sky and to, to not see difference and to, to, to talk about that message. Um, this is where we kind of disclose as, as journalists, as you know, you've got to disclose your uh, subjectivity or that you're, you're, you know, I mean, my father was a part of the ceremony. So he was on stage. He was on stage. He was on stage. <laughs> and, you know, ministered the oaths, right? Yeah. Yeah. He was, he was also kind of grooving to the Norman dancers. And yeah. It was he, like in his own, he was, he was doing one of these, oh, yeah. like, which is for listeners is uh, rhythmic thumbs up. Uh, but yeah, he, he had to be the happiest guy in the whole room. <laughs> uh, and chief, I, I think you should have chief as MC, Kevin chief, as MC of every government event. He was pretty good. <laughs> and, you know, like obviously he, he had a lot of, uh, you know, some jokes and levity and energy, but he actually said some stuff that I thought was, uh, was quite, uh, 
profound as well, which one of them that, you know, Kevin Chief said was, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, I'm not going to capture the same magic that he had, but that indigenous cultures uh, can't just be learned about through um, reading or, or hearing about it. You really have to experience it. And so that's why having the jigging, the singing, you know, the ceremonial, the ritual part of it was really important because we had business leaders there, municipal leaders, people from different walks of life uh, in our province. And then they were all able to participate in this shared experience. So one of the things I wrote about was the fact that you guys managed to put the ceremony back in the ceremony. And, and I've been blessed as a journalist to be present at Indigenous ceremonies in a whole bunch of different contexts, including like some very tragic con uh, uh, contexts. Plane crash in northwestern Ontario. I spent like four days on a remote reserve and got to see how the community responded to, you know, eight non-Indigenous people who died on the reserve. And I think that, like, just from my perspective, adding a, a spiritual element to that ceremony was so uh, cool and um, and profound. Um, and I'm just wondering, the, the for those people, maybe even in your own government, who haven't been to ceremony, uh, how did they react? Like, did they... Were they, uh, you know, did they understand uh, what differentiates a swearing-in ceremony from what you did last week or earlier this week? I, I think everyone could see that it was, yeah, that it was a ceremony in the in the broad sense of the the word that you're using it. And uh, I think everyone on our team felt very, very positive and felt it was a really meaningful experience. And I hope that uh, all Manitobans felt uh, the same way about it. And really, um, one of the things that we wanted to do was to just showcase the not just the diversity, but also the complexity and the nuance of, of the different Indigenous nations in Manitoba. So we had traditional uh, components like the Dakota Hotain singers, and you know we were using the, the sacred pipe, and we had that. We had the Kuluk from the Inuit, but then we also had uh, Christian prayers that were part of it, the Lord's Prayer, uh, because that's what a lot of Inuit and a lot of Cree communities, that's how they practice uh, their culture. And so really we just wanted it to be inclusive and to be broadly representative. Of course we can't you know, necessarily highlight every single nuance, but hopefully we did convey uh, the bigger picture reality that there is nuance and there is diversity and that inclusion means making uh, space for, for all of that. So the ceremony's over now, you're in the office, really you know, beautiful office, I can see We've got the buffalo skull over there that yep. you've uh, you've brought into the office from the Sundance, and and uh, you know now it's the business of governing. Here we are, a couple days in. Uh, this whole place is buzzing. In fact, when we came in the front door, it's uh, there's an energy here that's very electric. From the moment you walk in, there's a real sense of a lot of busyness. Of course, it's the change in government and so on. When the Conservatives came in in 2016, the very first thing they did. Uh, was to do an audit and to analyze uh, what they had perhaps thought about as kind of maybe deficiencies, but also at the worst end of that, maybe some instances that of uh, mismanagement of money. Um, are you planning any kind of analysis or any kind of audit uh, to look at the the, um, the the maybe the past? little while or maybe even longer while at the Conservatives. And I'm thinking about this consistently because, you know, when I got home from traveling, there was a 
check in my mailbox from the province for property tax rebate that I didn't expect coming. And maybe it was because I missed the dates or the deadlines or what happened. But certainly I think there, you know, there certainly might be some questions that you may have coming into the office of what have the Conservatives done in the last few months. Yeah, uh, we are. Um, we're going through that process right now of reviewing what the outgoing government was, was up to. I don't think it'll be a surprise to anyone that there is a lot more going on in the healthcare system that uh, you're going to find out about in the weeks to come just to show like what a, what a, what a mess there is in terms of the administrative side of healthcare and like really how challenging things are in terms of delivering healthcare services to people. We saw a story overnight uh, and you're going to continue to see more stories about ERs and things like that. But what the, the, the people of Manitoba may not be as familiar with is that there's also a financial mess left by the PCs on their way out the door. They overextended themselves pretty dramatically in trying to uh, win back support in an election year. And uh, in the coming weeks and months, I think we're going to, you know, share that with people so that they can understand that, you know, the idea that PCs are fiscally responsible simply just is not true, at least not in Manitoba anymore. And so there is going to be, I guess, uh, a review process, if you will, um, because a lot of the things that the PCs claimed, in, even before the blackout period, but definitely during the election, when it comes to provincial finances, simply had no bearing in reality. So we're going to have to correct that. So uh, a couple of specific issues that are kind of hanging in the air for us. It's not to say that they're a priority for the government. Right. Uh, one is the pandemic response, and uh, one is the completely unsatisfactory uh, and somewhat confusing end to the uh, the drama over the uh, Winnipeg Police Headquarters construction. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I'll deal with the, the first one first. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 Auditors General in a couple of provinces have already done exhaustive analyses of the provincial pandemic response in Ontario in particular, former Manitoba OAG working there, did a review. Do you anticipate either working with the Auditor General or in some other forum to take a look at how the government responded to the pandemic, what it did wrong, what perhaps it did right, but also uh, I think what everybody wants to know is how much political influence there was over decisions that should have been made really more by experts in public health? Well, yes, uh, and we are committed to an inquiry on, on the pandemic, but I, I really want to focus on the future. Yep. Like, rather than assigning blame and the, you know pointing the finger, I really wanted to focus more on the recommendations of what do we do for mm-hmm. a future public health crisis or a future mm-hmm. natural disaster, some other big challenge that befalls us uh, in Manitoba. Um, the Auditor General is a good point. Uh, they've already looked into some aspects of, of the, the, the pandemic response. Um, so I think as we get uh, uh, into uh, our administration here, we will be launching uh, an inquiry into the pandemic. But like I said, less about assigning blame and more so about um, bringing experts to say, uh, experts together to say what went right, what went wrong, what can we do better next time, and really, really focus it on the future. And I think part of that is to just match how Manitobans feel, which is I don't think Manitobans want to continue relitigating the past three no. years, but at the same time, 
it was such a, a, a huge challenge, such a, a traumatic experience in many ways that I think the only responsible thing to do is to do a bit of an organizational mm -hmm. review and a bit of a, um, a fact-finding exercise in terms of how can we improve things for the future. Uh, respecting your comments about not relitigating, um, do, do you believe, though, the, the relationships and interactions between political leaders and leaders of the, the uh, public health system uh, and how decisions were made that that's at least at the very least that's one of the issues that we need to cover off Well, I do and this came up during the pandemic was that um, Notwithstanding whatever public comments were made the the actual structure is that the public health officials provide advice And then the elected officials are the ones who actually issue the directive or who implement the policy And I do think that there you know there is room to ask this panel of experts. Is that the right structure? Or should the uh, public health uh, folks have the final mm -hmm. say? Which, if you look at different jurisdictions, there are those two approaches and variations on them out there. Um, but I do think that um, one of the other related issues, and I have heard this from folks working in the healthcare system, was just also like the, the, the culture of reprisal or like the, the, the top-down heaviness that prevented um, either local solutions from being brought forward to some of the challenges during the pandemic or just the ability for people to, to speak freely. Like when you think back to some of the most challenging periods mm -hmm. like Maples, that stuff came out anonymously and without names attached and not through formal government channels and yet it was absolutely critical to the public interest for people to find out about those things so i do think that that's one of the areas where we need to look at and again you know my partisan heart might very much like to point fingers through this <laughs> exercise i think the broader responsibility is to the people of manitoba and to focus it more on the future of this clearly outlined some challenges around mm -hmm. disclosure and whistleblowing and the you know fear of reprisal how can we address those things and make sure that we fix them going forward, not least of all, so that we can improve the way the healthcare system works and empower the people who work within it? Uh, blue ribbon panel, consultant, or formal commission of inquiry, do you have a, a preferred path for something like this? I think uh, at this point, formal formal commission of inquiry with the with the terms of reference that we would establish that would be again much more focused on the future mm -hmm. and bringing back recommendations for improving things and public hearings. Uh, well, I think um, that is probably uh, the way we would go. But uh, again, we need to get some legal advice in terms of what are all the uh, considerations there. Because the other thing is, we want people to be able to participate freely without you know again that fear of uh, you know having. Uh, Blame assigned to them. Um, I, you know, when I brought it up before, I'm going to acknowledge that the police headquarters and all of the legal wrangling, that's probably something that was just outside uh, of the, the reach of your radar for things that you need to take care of. But do, do you think, in some form, we need to resolve a situation where uh, the Provincial Crown Service decided not to lay charges on a case where there has been such a uh, devastating civil verdicts delivered. And I think the public is confused about, about where things appear to lie, especially the, it appears that the police wanted to lay charges. The Crown had it, didn't. But then when we saw the evidence through the civil proceedings, it was quite a story. And I, 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 I don't know that you've probably had time to consider that completely, but where, do, where do we start with something like that? Well, I, I think we are committed to, to an inquiry there as well. Um, and part of it is 
even though I'm a, a close observer and had a front row seat to a lot of the, I guess, uh, follow-up on this uh, issue, that I don't know the answer to many of the factual questions that you're raising there. And I do think it is in the public interest uh, for us to figure out um, what happened here, in large part uh, because uh, while there might be some measure of accountability coming through uh, the civil processes, that I do think there is that responsibility to, to figure out, you know, how do we avoid having uh, a situation like this with so many unanswered questions in the future. In your, um, your first speech as Premier, I wrote about it today. You probably had not had time to, to read uh, the column that I wrote today, but I read it. But, oh, okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, you don't have to flatter him. You know? Like it's if you're not like well, if you're going to get columns too. Oh, okay. <laughs> or, well, please then please carry on. <laughs> um, uh, I I point out that uh, by making yourself the minister of Indigenous reconciliation alongside as the premier. Uh, first time in history this has ever occurred, but. Uh, and, and the reason I, you know, rightly so, or, or is that it's just the government's not set up, provincial governments aren't set up to have direct relationship with First Nations or, frankly, Métis. And so as a result, there's been a lot of, um, uh, we'll call it a gap in communication or a gap in relationship. Uh, you, by saying you're going to recognize First Nations governments, and if we just take Manitoba, I mean, you said in your speech, all North America, which is pretty big and, and lofty, but... Uh, we've got 63 First Nations in Manitoba. We've got the Manitoba Métis Federation. Uh, you said in the speech that as intergovernmental minister, you're going to recognize them as governments. Uh, what does that entail? I mean, that's a pretty big statement because, as I point out, that EC has been going to try to do this over a long period of time to recognize Indigenous rights or Indigenous people's right to govern uh, themselves and others in their traditional territories. What does that really mean? And does it mean that First Nations can begin the process of having their decisions recognized by police, the courts, child welfare agencies, the healthcare system? Well, I think first and foremost, it's about uh, relationship building and ensuring that there's uh, the communication of respect and a real engagement on a substantive level when issues arise. So as Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs, if something came up with the state of North Dakota, the expectation would be that I would, I would lead the response as a premier. If something came up with the federal government, the expectation is that I would call the prime minister, for lack of a better term. And so part of what I'm indicating here is when an issue arises with the Manitoba Métis Federation or with the First Nations uh, government, that uh, I will lead the response. Um, but then, of course, we're going to have other ministers who are empowered and the civil service who's empowered um, to follow up on that. As we started to talk about this project before it was announced publicly, one of the messages we heard from the civil service was, this would really help us. <clears throat> because up till now, the civil service has often wondered, who am I supposed to engage with on a specific pro project? Like, let's say there's a, a resource project. Am I supposed to engage with a specific First Nation? Am I supposed to engage with SCO, with MKO, with the Manitoba Métis Federation, with the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs? And so I think part of what the civil service will be able to improve in terms of the more rubber meets the road question that you're kind of posing here is that going forward, I think there's going to be greater clarity across different departments, whether that's in uh, economic development, investment, trade, and natural resources, or whether that's uh, municipal, there's going to be a, a greater uh, path forward there. But in terms of the delivery of services, I would think that this is a value proposition for everyone in Manitoba. I think that things will be better off for everybody in the province. And here's one specific example. 
We have uh, an argument being brought forward um, from the civil service in healthcare, saying right now the northern health region is spending $20 million on a specific type of patient transportation that we think if you deliver health services uh, in First Nations, you would be able to reduce the spending on. And there is a precedent for delivery of some health services uh, on First Nations. There's a dialysis unit in, uh, in Garden Hill as one example. But I'm just laying this out where I think there is um, opportunity for us in the future to make a better functioning healthcare system for everybody in Manitoba if we just take some common sense steps to say we're going to deliver services closer to home rather than to spend the money on transporting people far away and then all the other attendant, attendant uh, issues around people being separated from family supports and cultural supports. So I do think that as we, we go forward with this project, it is about reconciliation very much, but it is also, I think, about delivering a more effective government in a way that would benefit everyone in the, man, in the, in the province, whether they're Indigenous or not. That's also, uh, I mean, to be clear, uh, that is a legal, the legal principle of Jordan, Jordan's principle, which is that, that young youth, for example, and Joyce's, Joyce's principle, Joyce Eshquan's right. principle, Joyce Eshquan's Joyce principle is that First Nations should not be discriminated against simply because they live in a First Nation or that they are First Nations. And that Jordan's principle is that children should not be discriminated against just because they live on yeah. a First Nation. So, I mean, you're basically adopting and uh, accepting those two premises. Yeah, as a philosophical framework. And now the, the question is, what does that mean in reality? And I think the thing that's going to guide us is like, we have this big picture project of improving healthcare for everybody among many other big priorities that we're being tasked with. So how, as part of an improvement for healthcare for the average person in South Winnipeg or the average person in, uh, in Surus, how do we make the delivery of healthcare services more efficient for somebody living on a First Nation so that we again have the level of appropriate resources to deliver to other people in the province of Manitoba? Uh, so uh, just following up on that, though, like I, I personally have visited three First Nations and had conversations about their right to issue fishing licenses, hunting licenses, their ability to levy fines, uh, you know, in a civil context. Uh, Negan and I were talking about the possibility of speeding tickets and highway traffic enforcement and that kind of thing. Is that, is that, I mean, I, in many ways, that's probably not even the most important expression of a recognition of First Nations as a separate level of government. And yet they are basic functions that right now the provincial government or the federal government is doing for. And that doing for instead of doing by is like a big issue when it comes to, to recognition. Do, do you see some evolution of that happening where it says more of these administrative and legal responsibilities gets transferred? Yeah, I do. Um, and, and I would think that it, it probably comes up first in areas around public safety because uh, I've heard from some leaders from Northern First Nations where they want <clears throat> help with uh, the airports, which are under provincial jurisdiction and issues of uh, you know toxic drugs and uh, other things coming into their communities. And then uh, a broader, you know, question across the province, including in, in, in southern communities where people are worried about, about public safety. 
and there is a responsibility of uh, the province to support law enforcement uh, through all the various levels, including the RCMP, including local police forces, but also to work with the Manitoba uh, First Nations police, right? So I think that uh, that's probably going to be one of the first areas where these sorts of questions uh, get sorted through. But I think the way to sort through them is to have that honest and open dialogue with what I'm clearly articulating now are the First Nations and Métis governments and our government and where necessary provincial and municipal governments so that we can chart a, a path forward. The commitment is there. Now the question is around resources, around implementation, and around uh, you know questions of enforcement. The other big announcement other than healthcare is the creation of a new ministry. Right. So, uh, and homelessness, addiction, I'm probably going to get the order wrong here, uh, homelessness, addictions, and um, housing, housing. Yeah. and under uh, Minister Smith. So yeah. uh, undoubtedly, Minister Smith has direct experience, you know, having a member of her family in murder, missing, indigenous women and girls heading up a project like Drag the Red. Uh, how monumental is that ministry and uh, as you said bringing all of these different stakeholders into one ministry uh, almost seems as someone who works in frontline poverty and have done so for 30 years you know when we when just walking through north point douglas walking through main street uh, the fact that even social agencies who some of them are christian some of them are first nation indigenous run some of them are are just interested communities in certain neighborhoods of the city that are volunteering. I mean, even just getting them to agree alone is on um, the solutions is difficult enough. Uh, how do you bring all of these different stakeholders who for years have worked in silos to try to, um, you know, I think Minister Smith has got a monumental task. Yeah, I think it is uh, by no means going to be a, uh, an easy uh, project, but it's one that our, our whole team is really committed to. And we've asked, uh, you know, uh, Minister Smith to lead that project. But what I would say is, like, where have we seen success locally and where have we seen success in other areas? It's typically been when people have a barrier free approach and they have uh, no concern with turf wars, and there's not a concern with, um, I guess, uh, ideological constraints, if we could say things like that. Where we've seen success locally, I would say, is Bear Clan, Mama Bear Clan, Sabe Peace Walkers, people who just go out and they see somebody who's thirsty, they give them a bottle of water, see somebody who's hungry, they give them a sandwich, and they just try and work from there, and perhaps maybe tie people into other services as appropriate. When we look at other cities, whether it's Houston, Lethbridge, you know, other communities out there who are dealing with, uh, you know, people without shelter or they're dealing with addictions, it has been working across government, business, not profits to have a barrier free approach and to ensure that everyone participating has uh, a shared commitment. And so, I think the first step that we announced this week, and I think it's crucial, uh, not just operationally for our government, but also because of the message that it, uh, it telegraphs to the broader community, is we're bringing everything together under one roof, from the, the housing to the wraparound supports, the addictions programming, the mental health uh, initiatives that are needed here, so that we can get people off the street and into housing, and then provide the wraparounds uh, for them while they're there. And now that we've done this at the government level, it's going to be our expectation that we're going to work together with everyone else out there for for uh, the same goal and to have a similar approach. I mean, I'm very interested to see 
the research that comes out of, I mean, we're still at the new stage of the the development of Thunderbird House and seeing the kind of ways that that project is or is not working. I really want, I'm interested to see what the research is, but um, I know that it's hard to make a commitment this early in your premiership, uh, but you've in the past uh, said quite directly that you support safe injection sites or at least the movement towards safe injection, um, similar to what we might see in Thunder Bay and something like that. Would you, is that your plan? Is that your plan to move towards safe injection sites? Yeah, I use the term, uh, the term uh, supervised consumption site just to, I guess, maybe try to um, describe accurately what's, what's taking place uh, there, which is medical and expert supervision of people who are consuming um, substances. And, you know, I, I do think that has to be part of a harm reduction expert-driven response to the addictions crisis. But really, the hope there is to ensure that when somebody walks through the door and they talk to the nurse who's there, that they're going to be able to access primary care and potentially find out if they're pregnant or if they have an STBBI or if they need some other form of medical attention. And by the way, can we talk about recovery? Can we talk about, you know, addressing mental health needs or, you know, healing from childhood trauma, other things that are going on there. So I just want folks to, to understand that, yes, as we're committed to this thing, that the real goal is to start treating, and we've talked about this before in your podcast, is to start treating the addictions crisis as a healthcare crisis and to use a health-driven response to it. So I, I will say uh, it doesn't really matter uh, which political leader or which government, but uh, my antenna start to twitch anytime I hear a politician promise to end or eliminate a problem <laughs> uh, because uh, having been involved in this uh, gig way too long, um, I see these things always come back to haunt. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and hallway medicine is still, you know, kind of hanging in the air in this province. Uh, and, you know, that was the promise of the 1999 uh, NDP led by Gary Dewar. It was a, a key pledge in the NDP winning that election. And 17 years in government would suggest that, uh, you know, there was some measure of success in what they did in 99. But ending hallway medicine um, still kind of hangs there. What we found out later on was that there's always going to be people, there need to be people at times within eyesight close to medical help and where there may not be room in an ER. So eliminating hallway medicine really wasn't the goal. The goal was to stop people spending days and days and days in hallways. But it came out as end hallway medicine. So ending chronic homelessness. Okay, I, I want you to describe to me <clears throat> what that like if we if you get a measure of success or complete success yeah. what is that going to look like cuz you know i think the idea that there will be no one living hard it you know that's hard to believe what's your what's your image what's your definition of ending chronic homelessness well i think the the word chronic is doing a lot of heavy lifting in that sentence and uh, basically we're saying 6 weeks and the expectation should be once we fully implemented this uh, this agenda and this program that everyone in Manitoba should expect that if someone is on the streets for six weeks, by that time we will have found them, connected them with housing and connected them with the other services that they need to get back on a, a more positive path. Um, but I also want to say that the goal in us talking about it in this way is to be ambitious mm -hmm. and to set a clear message to the people of Manitoba that we want to be held accountable on this because if we don't set 
an ambitious target and most specifically if we don't set a target then everything on homelessness is always just going to be another 50 million another 120 million it's just going to be a continued government investment but what is the actual difference that it's making for people in the community and what is the difference that it's making for people who don't feel comfortable when they go downtown right now or when they drive by a bus shelter and South Pemina. So really, uh, it, is, it, it is ambitious. It is a, a, a big goal. It, it's going to be very difficult to reach, but I think it's important that we set a high bar so that Manitobans can actually hold us accountable and say, in the first instance, is homelessness getting better generally? But in the second, more specific instance, have they hit that target of six weeks? And you know, how well are they doing in terms of turning things around? And then I guess to, <clears throat> to then assess the sustainability of it like you know if you do get someone off the street how long can they stay there yeah. you know is there more to be done uh, at you know at that point it's really bad you have encampments in part of the province uh, where they've never existed before outside the city of winnipeg in rural communities on reserve you have encampments and this is part of a much larger social phenomena that, that, it, that has to do with addictions and the post-pandemic period, that has to do with intergenerational trauma, that has to do with the child welfare system. So in the immediate instance, and this is, hey, you know as well as I do, when the temperature drops another 10 degrees, this is going to be a very... It's a crisis thing. It's yeah. going to be a very acute yeah. issue that our government yeah. is going to have to have a response to. And in, I guess, the more medium term, it's going to be more about, like, what is the effective delivery of housing and wraparound services look like? And then in the longer term, we do have to grapple with those bigger intergenerational challenges of poverty and trauma and addictions uh, that I'm talking about. So it is it is a major undertaking, but I do think um, we can move the needle on it, and we have to. So... Mostly in the podcast today, we've dealt with all the easy questions. Those have been all the easy questions. Reconciliation, <laughs> yeah, yeah, healthcare, fixing, yeah, yeah, easy stuff. Low, <laughs> low hanging fruit, as we call it in the biz. Um, so I have a, I have a couple of questions that are inspired actually by my experience with other covering other premiers. Okay. So uh, Gary Filman and Gary Dewar, they're lake guys. You know, oh. like when they need to get away from it, that that was their their getaway. After that, we had a guy who needed to travel to another continent. Famously. Uh, famously travel to another continent. Although, if you are harboring some form of, uh, of holiday vacation property in another jurisdiction, this is the perfect this environment. The You're among <laughs> friends here, so just go ahead and tell us. But no, like if you, if you needed to get away from Winnipeg, uh, you know, to, uh, rest, uh, repair, relaxation, where, where would you go? Where have you gone? Where do you go? Well, probably to uh, to the reserves that I come from in northwestern Ontario or to Dauphin, which is where my wife uh, used to live and practice medicine. So those are two places that we get to quite regularly. I'll, I'm going to go uh, to Onigaming. Yeah, I think in just over a week's time, we're going to have a fish fry with the community just to kind of celebrate and to yeah. thanks for all the, give thanks to all the people that I, that I grew up with there. And then um, Dauphin, it's just a, a place that we really like in the province where my wife uh, still has a lot of friends and we have a lot of good, uh, you know, working relationships with people now through politics. So, yeah, so it's probably one of those two spots. And the Riding Mountain is not a bad place to be at no. the Riding Mountain or to visit Clear Lake. So no, no, it's really for good. sure. Like just in case your, your boys are listening to the podcast, you want to throw in like 
one trip to Disney World or something like that, just so they have something to look forward to? <laughs> yes. Uh, well, I think we're going to spend Christmas in Manitoba uh, just to kind of take some time. But yeah, for sure, we'll, uh, we'll find some time to, to get away. I was with a group of, uh, speaking of the boys, yeah. you know, um, I was with a group of uh, young people this morning, and I was telling them that I'm going to uh, give you, you know, interview you and visit with you. And uh, one of them cares a lot about the Jets and okay. wanted me to ask you, uh, are you concerned about the attendance? And I think that, you know, it's the attendance is down. And we saw that over the years, the Jets left because of issues around attendance. Also, lots of other issues, business and the Canadian dollar and so on. But, are, you know, I, I was assigned to ask you that question. I love the Winnipeg Jets. I love... Adam Lowry being the captain of the team this season. I was very happy that they were able to sign uh, Hellebuck and Shifley to stay long-term. And uh, I'll take responsibility for for my share of the attendance because I haven't made it out to a game yet this year, even though we do uh, share tickets with the the in-laws. And so I'll definitely uh, change that and start getting out to games uh, as soon as I can. And I think... um, it's really important for the Jets and the Bombers uh, to be, you know, healthy and, and, and you know, thriving in the city. I think that's good for the social fabric. It's good for the economy. It's good for any number of things. So yeah, I share the, I share the the hopes for a, a winning uh, Jet season, as I'm sure this young person does. And um, you know, I think uh, we all do our part and cheer on the home team. I think that'll 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 help. I think, uh, and you know, you, uh, one of the best moments of the ceremony was when you were speaking directly to your family. And, and that's a, uh, you know, that is a, it, you know, it's your job. It's their burden, uh, yeah. to a certain extent. Way to put it. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I've seen it, right? Like I've seen, uh, you know, really smart people in politics have to manage, you know, people, you know, in the federal system who have to spend all their time away from home. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, moving forward, um, what, like, did, like uh, on election night, maybe before the results started coming in or prior to election night, did you ever have this, like, you know, be careful what you wish for moments? <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, you've, you've lived the life of a political leader now for six years. Yeah. So it's not like, uh, I mean, I know that the operational tempo, as they like to say, the military is going to pick up, but you know what the demands are. Yeah. Uh, but did you ever, ever have that moment leading up where you went, oh, geez, you know, what's, what am I doing? I, I think I'm really lucky that our family has a, has a very clear-eyed view of it. And so uh, leading into the election, you know, even though uh, our kids, one is an adult and, you know, the other is a teenager and the other one's in, um, uh, you know, the K-12 system, uh, this is what they've known for as long as, you know, they can pretty much remember. And prior to that, I was on TV. You know, yeah. Not that I was, you know, the you know, really high-profile uh, person at that time, but they're used to hearing my voice on the radio or just seeing the, the image in the media. So I don't, uh, like... And I never kind of under um, play or underestimate the impact that it has on them. But I also feel like they've they've grown up with a lot of family support and community support so that they could succeed here uh, in terms of this new uh, reality. And then 
from election on forward, I think my wife actually said it best, which was, you know, on Thanksgiving weekend, you know, she just turned to me and she said, I feel like we're on the top of a roller coaster right now. And just what, and what's going to come in the next weeks is all the ups and downs and the you know banking turns and the, yeah. the corkscrew shape. <laughs> yeah, I would, <laughs> going around I would definitely around get that done on a T-shirt yeah. for everybody for Christmas. <laughs> that stocking stuffer, definitely. Uh, in my column, I, I, I drew a parallel to some of the the commentary from Barack Obama in his autobiography, hmm. and he talked about uh, coming to office to the highest office in that land. Uh, carrying the expectations of a particular group of people and that he calls them oversized expectations. Do, do you, do, do you feel the weight of oversized expectations, particularly from indigenous people? Do you f- worry that you're not going to be able to be all that they want you to be? Well, this is what I signed up for. And so I feel a responsibility is how I'd say it. And I had, uh, I've definitely had many interactions um, since the election with a lot of people, including on swearing-in day. But my first time leaving the city on an official visit was to go to Cross Lake. And while we were there, we were supposed to open the, the help celebrate the opening of the new health center. But they insisted that we visit the schools. And these schools are way over capacity because of the young population in the community. And so they, they gathered all like, you know, a thousand kids outside of the, the elementary school and then again at the, at the high school. And just to see the optimism, the excitement, the fist bumps and the cheering and the selfies with the, uh, the older kids at these schools, it just like, just made it very clear. It was a clarifying experience where, you know, I just thought to myself, this is what it's about. It's about for kids in this community. It's for kids in suburban Winnipeg. It's for young people in, in southern Manitoba, right across Manitoba. We have a huge responsibility to deliver. And so I think the only way you can respond is to try and stay humble and then to just uh, work as hard as you can to deliver on those expectations because that's what the people of Manitoba deserve. Manitobans deserve to set a high bar and expect uh, your public servants to, to reach it. Uh, I have one story to add to that, and uh, so we both have fathers who have come through a lot of uh, trauma as Indigenous men, mm-hmm. and uh, so we don't hear the words "I love you" very much, right? So I'm flying back. I was in Toronto. I, I missed the swearing-in, but but I, I uh, knew it would be coming for this interview. Um, my father uh, told me he loved me that night, and I think large part because he was moved by the things that he had witnessed, right, that he had seen. And uh, one of the, re- the great things is that I was able to tell my dad, um, because one of the things that for years, uh, one of the hardest things has been just not having your dad around, you know, and uh, watching your father go to all these little towns in Manitoba, going to churches, going to hundreds of places across the province. And so... Um, one thing I told him is I said, you know, when he said that this was a moment of Manitoba's reconciliation, I think what he was saying was, is that uh, Manitoba made a choice on this election and that Manitoba uh, has taken a long time to kind of come to grips with the understanding that we have deep relationships with each other as Canadians, as Indigenous peoples together. And uh, one thing I said to my father was much of that day was about those road trips he took and mm. much about... And I think your father, too, certainly the travels that he took. 
uh, with the great Tobasonaquit and the great vision that he gave to all of us. Uh, I, I, I was able to sort of come to a point of understanding with my father from that day. So I think that's, a, that's something that I think is happening for a lot of us in that it's not just about putting that on you, but also uh, coming to an understanding of this moment historically, what it means for us as family members. And, and uh, so I just want to say miigwech to that. That really means a lot that he shared that and uh, I feel the emotion. And what I would say is that I've experienced a change uh, even even since the election and I would, I would thank the people of Manitoba for giving me this opportunity. So one of the things that I used to talk about in the Indigenous context is that reconciliation is about bringing Indigenous and non-Indigenous people together. But often the reconciliation that we seek in the Indigenous community is a reconciliation within the own generations of our family. And now what I can say after the experience of talking to people, um, talking, <laughs> I don't want to name drop, but like some very well-known Manitobans, some very like, uh, you know, just average, you know, grassroots Manitobans, is I think that that's true of everyone in the province. You could be a Mennonite person, a Jewish person, you know, somebody whose family has been here for generations, you know, somebody who's perhaps just arrived. And I think there's a, a sense of optimism, but also a sense that like, you want in your time here on earth to be able to make good on the people who matter to you, mom and dad, your kids, your friends, your relatives, and things like that. And so if we, in this moment, can help shine a light on the importance of, uh, of strengthening the ties that bind, then um, that's a pretty awesome uh, opportunity for us to deliver on. And what I would say to the people of Manitoba is thank you for encouraging me to see beyond the bounds of my own community and to recognize that I'm part of um, this province along with everyone else. Um, Premier Wapkanu, uh, thank you very much yeah. uh, for your time. And uh, I'm already, uh, I'm going to book you in for another six for weeks. Four. Sure. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> for fourth appearance. <laughs> That's right. Well, yeah, fourth, you get the. Uh, you, you get a t shirt. <laughs> you get a t shirt on the fourth one. And that's it's a right. picture of us. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, good Lord. Uh, no, thanks very much for your time. Good this is like the busy. This, this is, will be among the busiest weeks you ever have yeah. uh, in office. So we appreciate you making time. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me back. And let's go for uh, round four on the podcast. Yeah, that's right. <laughs>